Well, I, I was praying and thinking about where we were going to go uh, as a church in our, our time here together in, in the sermon time after we wrapped up our series through Joshua. And, you know, one of the things that I, I have been thinking about, one of the things that I uh, have decided to, to spend a little bit of time preaching on is what I'm going to call what we believe. Uh, so what we believe as a church, as, as Elevate, and one of the things that I get a lot of questions about as I get out in the community and I get in interacting with a lot of people is, hey, why do you guys worship on Saturday? Like, like why aren't you open on Sunday like everybody else, you know? And so I thought I would begin by introducing to some of you and maybe reminding some of you others that this is not a new concept, too, of, of something the Bible calls the Sabbath. Now, um, this may sound like a foreign term to you, but my hope is by the end of today's message, it won't be a foreign term, and you'll understand the context of which we get that term from in the Bible. So let's have a quick word of prayer, and I want to share with you something I think is just so beautiful and so powerful from the Word of God. Father, today as we open your Word and we ask that you would just kind of be with us and guide our thoughts and guide our understanding, I pray that you would speak to every one of your sons and daughters that's here today, Lord that we would just simply be receptive and willing to hear. And Father God, I just pray that, that you would uh, just continue to journey with us. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, the Sabbath is something that we get from Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 1 is actually where we get the entire, uh, you know, week-long creation narrative, okay? And, and creation, when you, when you look at it and you, and you boil it down, I believe creation is, is actually kind of like, God's love in material form, okay? It, it, it's God's love in an expressive material form. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4 that, that God is love, and, and because of that, it's in his very nature to give, okay? And it's also, therefore, in his nature to create. That, that's part of what he is and who he is, and, and to share in a relationship with, with the creatures and the, the things that he makes in a, a relationship of joy, that's why you exist. That's, that's why I exist. The Bible says the reason that, that God made us, the reason we even exist at all, is primarily for two reasons. Number one, it's to love, and number two, it's to be loved. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? Like, that's why we as human beings are here. Like, like that is why we exist. You know, and it sounds simple, but I, I, let me tell you, there's a whole lot packed into that, and we'll see that as we explore this today. Uh, I want today to kind of explore our, our place in creation as human beings, okay, as humans. More specifically, I want to look at what it means to be a human in relationship to God in, in two different aspects. Number one, as our creator, and number two, as our savior, okay? So I want to begin with the creation account in, in the book of Genesis. We're going to start in chapter one. I'm going to read the first few verses of the very first book of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And right there, in the very beginning of the Bible, right with that, the, the, the story begins. Our story begins, our story as human beings. As we take the whole picture in of the entire creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and we look at what's going on there, we notice that the story of creation 
uh, when you when you analyze it, it has this deliberate poetic logic. Okay. Now there's a a uh, poetic uh, structure, a literary form called a chiasm. Okay. Anybody ever heard that word before? A chiasm. A couple of you know what I'm talking about. All right. So this is this is a, a structure of literature, and it, you realize that Genesis chapter chapter one verse one through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, is actually one chiasm. It's a chiastic structure, okay? And I'm going to unpack what that means here in a second. It simply means this. In this instance, the, the story that is told in, in the creation account is basically like one, it's like, a, it's like a mountain with two sides ascending and one common, common pinnacle while the other side mirrors the, the, the first side. I, I put a little slide to hopefully maybe make this make sense. I, I numbered the days of creation there to kind of show you the chiastic structure in the creation account. Uh, hopefully that makes sense to you. I put it on a black background so you can see it better. Uh, a series of six literal days in, in creation, all right, each with an evening and a morning, compose the creation event, okay? One is mirrored with four and two with five and three with six. We'll explain that in a minute. And then day seven at the end, okay? So it, it, it composes the creation event followed by the seventh day of rest. Now, that's the basic picture of creation right there. But we, we notice that, that day one corresponds to day four, and day two corresponds to day five, and day three corresponds to day six. There's a correlation there. And then day seven occupies the, the focal point of the poem at the pinnacle of the chiasm. Now, I just want to pause for one second. I want to say this, too. Just because Genesis' uh, creation account is written in this poetic structure does not mean that this was not a literal event, Okay. This was a very literal event that actually happened that took place just as it said it did, but it also has this poetic structure in there as well. Okay, I just want to emphasize that. So as we read the creation poem, we see God moving forward in an artistic pattern, and the pattern is forming and then filling. All right, so he, he forms something, and then he fills that thing that he formed, okay? This is the, the pattern over and over throughout creation. So on the first three days, God forms spaces by dividing the material elements of creation. He makes the spaces, okay? And then on the, the next three days of creation, he goes back and he fills those spaces with things. Are you with me so far? I kind of put some language to that in, that's pretty small, so sorry if you can't read that. I'm not going to take a time to read it, but if you want to, you can. Uh, on day one, God, God creates light and he divides light from the darkness. And then God loops back on day four to fill the light with the sun and the darkness with the moon. Okay, so this is kind of the forming and the filling on day two. God forms the water and the sky and divides them into spaces. And then on day five, he fills the water with fish and the, the air was, the sky with birds, okay? So he, he made the space on day two, fills it on day uh, five. On day three, God forms the land and the water into separate spaces. And then on day six, he fills the land with plants and animals and, and mankind, okay? Day six, at the very end of day, day six, God forms the man from the dust of the ground and then fills the man with the breath of life. And then, now this is interesting, at the very pinnacle of, of this, chiastic, this chiasm, God rests from his work on the seventh day, and he, he fills it with blessing and sanctity. Okay, so he created a space, and he filled that space on the same day. Okay, it's the pinnacle of the chiasm. Genesis 2 one through three beautifully expresses the climax of the structure. It says this, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it 
because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, I want to say this. The seventh day is the most unique space of all. And the reason being is this. It is not a physical space that is composed of matter, but it is rather a relational space composed of time. It's different, isn't it? And this, this space, is, it's, it's not filled with more material stuff, okay? But with the blessing of actually God's uh, presence, of God's fellowshipping presence. So the chiastic structure of the poem points to the blessing of fellowship with God as the actual, the, the whole point of creation, the grand objective of creation, and the seventh day as this recurring space in time that that fellowship with God is realized in the most intimate of ways. The seventh day really is a, a constant reminder of the relational love toward which the entire creative process was reaching. Now that we have the basic picture, I want to back up for a second and focus in on what the creation story actually tells us and reveals to us regarding the character of God and also human, human beings' blessed position in relationship to that God. So I, I like to imagine, maybe you've done this before if you've read the creation account, and uh, you ever think about the very first few moments of human consciousness, like Adam opened his eyes for the first time, right? Genesis 2 verse 7 begins to paint this picture for us. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So as the life force moves from the creator into Adam, the very first man, oxygen floods into his lungs for the very first time. His, his, his eyes open up. He, he blinks and begins to, to focus his eyes for the very first time. And God's face is literally just inches away from his. Creator and creature are making eye contact. They're making eye contact. Imagine, imagine, like, think about this for a second, like, that, that first introduction, you know, like, hi, I'm God, you know, I, I'm your maker, I made you, yeah, hi, I'm, uh, well, I don't really know who I am, right, like, who am I? Oh, oh, you're Adam, you know, you're the first human being that I've made, and, and welcome, welcome to existence, welcome to life, you know, and, oh, cool, thanks, appreciate, you know, what's next, what, what, what now, what's next, well, you know, God is not done. You know, creation at this point, is it, you'd think it was complete, but it's not yet complete, and here's why. Something, or rather someone, is missing, okay? So God gets a little playful with Adam, I think, in order to lead him into the realization that he needs a companion. Genesis 2, verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever called each, uh, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So if you don't like the name of an animal, you can blame Adam for that, okay? He's the one who named them. Uh, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. I can imagine Adam, man, he's standing there and he's, he's watching all the animals kind of come before him. And he's like... Wait a second, there's a pattern here. You know, there's male and female, male and female. And ma there's only one of me. What's going on here, God? Like, this, is, this isn't right, you know? And uh, it kind of begins to dawn on him, and he's like, you know, I just, I, I don't have any romantic chemistry with any of these animals, you know? And so verse 20, God, God goes on. He says, so, so or, or excuse me, he says, <clears throat> I already read that, didn't I? 
I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. That happens. Uh, so, so Adam and Eve uh, here in uh, verse, I'm sorry, I just, I got lost for a second. So this is the God speaking here. It says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he, he brought her to the man. Okay, so he, he brings her to the man, and, and there they stand for the very first time in front of God, male and female, the very first man, the very first woman, Adam and Eve, okay? Their, their minds are, are, are processing all the sights and the sounds and the smells, everything around them, and, and their senses, I think, are just flooded with, with this overwhelming sheer amounts of, of pleasure, right? By the way, that's what Garden of Eden means. Eden means pleasure. It literally means the Garden of pleasure. This is what it what was designed for. Every cell of their bodies is alive with, with pulsating energy, okay, as they just completely give themselves to one another in this perfect environment of, of Eden, and now that the man and the woman both exist, they are living with, with completely selfless love for each other, and the image of God is now fully reproduced, and creation is now complete, but now we notice another feature of the story that it holds some amazing revelation power, some revealing power regarding who God is and who we are in relationship to him. Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, on Friday, and on the latter part of the sixth day, after all the work of creation was, was finished, this means two things for us. Number one, this means that creation was, and, and still is, by the way, a sheer gift from God. Like, that's what it is. It's, it's a gift from God to us, okay? And number two, it means that humanity's natural position, like, like the way God designed us to be positioned in relation to him is one of faith in God, as what many have said and what I, the term I've used here, the great giver. The great giver, okay? God is the one who gives. We are the ones who receive. They did not participate in the work of creation, by the way, they didn't even witness creation, okay? They, they weren't there. They were not in existence yet. They awoke to life as, as the objects of, of grace and, and recipients of, of life and all of its pleasures as a, as a free gift to them. And then on the very first full day of their existence, the very first full day of, of life, they rested on the seventh day, their very first day of life. There was nothing to... Either the man or woman could point to and say, hey, you see that over there? I made that. Or like, even like, hey, you know what, that animal over there, you know, God and I worked on that together. I thought the stripes on the tiger would look pretty cool. No, no, no. That was all God. That was all God. The embedded truth of, of the seventh day is that creation is his work alone, and our primary position, our primary uh, stat, stance is that of restful dependence on him. God's primary role as the creator is that of giver. He's giving to us, okay? He's the one that's doing all of it, and he's giving it to us, while the human position is, as creature is that of receiver. Adam and Eve came to life, if you think about this logically, in a position of faith and dependence on God. The necessity of trust was, was built into their very existence from the start. It, it's easy to see that, that faith was, was 
It, it was intrinsic in a way to pre-fall human existence. Adam and Eve find themselves alive by, by no effort of their own. They didn't have anything to do with that. In a world, they had nothing to do with creating, and they are face-to-face -face with this divine being who is telling them a story, and it's the story of how he made them and everything around them that they, that they see and feel and, and smell and touch. Maybe God said something like, you know, I made you from the dust, the ground that's under your feet, and, um, you know, I made that out of nothing just with my thoughts, which I expressed through my words, and then it was there. You're perfect, Adam. You're perfect, Eve. You are exactly what I had in mind. And all the beauty that surrounds you, everything that surrounds you, that is my gift to you. That's my gift to you. Whatever God said, because we don't really know, but the bottom line is that a glorious being stands before them claiming to be their maker, claiming to be their creator. To have any sense of identity at all, they must believe that what God is telling them is indeed the case. They didn't witness creation coming into being. All the work was done by the time the man and woman even opened their eyes to life, to existence. It was already done. The work was done. They must simply trust that what they're being told is true. Their very existence is actually a faith experience. And the Sabbath day was instituted by God as a day of rest and reflection that was designed to keep fresh in their memories his love as the giver and their elevated, blessed positions as receivers. And this is what the Sabbath continues to mean all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, taking on specific significance with, with regards to our salvation as God's work, just as creation in the beginning was his work. I want you to trace this biblical thread with me. We're going to move forward in the biblical narrative, and we discover that the Sabbath is a part of, of God's great moral law, the Ten Commandments. You know, this is extremely significant, of course, because it means that the Sabbath is not some arbitrary rule that was just there in creation, but rather it is an integral part of, of mor the moral fabric of the way that God designed existence to be. As such, the Sabbath is universal and eternal for all human beings. It's the fourth commandment in the ten. We're going to read together in Exodus chapter 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We are quick to notice that, that all the other commandments are of a moral nature. Like, you know, the, the, we're readily willing to admit, for example, the sixth commandment, which forbids murder, and the, the seventh commandment, which talks about forbidding adultery. You know, those are necessary moral laws that apply to all human beings of all time, right? Like, of course that's the case. Yeah, that, that, we don't even argue about that. We don't even think about it. You know, but according to Jesus, he says that, that love is the summation of, the, of God's law, or it is the fulfillment of the law, okay? And so it is easy to see that, that love would, would automatically rule out murder and, and being unfaithful to your, to your marriage vows. But what about this, this fourth commandment, the one regarding the Sabbath? Like, like, is it like the other nine commandments? Is it an imperative moral law 
that is actually intrinsic to the operations of love? And I think the answer is actually yes. You see, if God's law, if God's law is a description of what love actually looks like in action, which it is, then Sabbath keeping must in some way constitute an enactment of love and therefore must be of a moral character. This is easy to see, actually, when we remember the meaning of the Sabbath as indicated in the Genesis account of creation. First, we saw that that the Sabbath was made holy by God and was filled with the blessing of God's presence. Okay, that's what he filled it with. He filled it with himself. Okay. Secondly, we saw that the Sabbath signifies our proper relationship to God as creatures of dependence who must necessarily live by faith toward our Creator if we are to know Him as the God of love that He actually is. So the Sabbath then, it actually occupies the role of a, um, a memorial. It's a memorial, Right? It reminds us that God created the heavens and earth and that God created mankind in his image to be active participants in his love. It's a reminder that that is reality. Both of these points are without question of moral significance. When I keep the Sabbath, I am acknowledging God as my creator and as my sustainer. And I am engaging in a a tangible relational action that communicates to him that I am living in restful dependence on him rather than venturing out into self-dependence. So the inclusion of the Sabbath in God's moral law actually makes perfect sense when you understand it properly, when you understand what it's really about. To know God as as, as the, the giver of all good things And to relate to him as such with faith and love, it's in fact the highest moral state, I would say, of the human being. It's the highest moral state of the human being. Paul gets to the heart of what sin is when he declares in in Romans 14, 23, that whatever is not of faith is sin. All sin, all sin, whatever behavioral form it takes, whatever it looks like, it really amounts to broken trust relational failure of some kind, or a disengagement from faithful love for God and for others. The Sabbath commandment is the one among the ten that brings faith into our keeping of all the other commandments. It's the one that tells us as created beings that we are utterly dependent upon God as our creator. That's what it tells us. So we, we then can, can conclude from that that the Sabbath is definitely part of the moral structure of life as God created life to function. It is a recurring space in time that memorializes the, the, the proper nature of our relationship with God. So every week, it comes to me, it comes to you, it comes to every single being, human being, and, and it speaks the truth of who we are and who God is to us. It's a reminder once a week of that relationship. So we've seen that the Sabbath is, is set forth in, in the Bible as a memorial of the fact that creation is God's work, and, and, and therefore it's a pure gift to humanity. Now I want to, to switch gears a little bit, and I want to show you something that 
even a lot of, of, of Seventh-day Adventist Christians that are, are Sabbath keepers, maybe not, they, they don't get this quite. Right? I want to turn our attention to the fact that the Sabbath is also a memorial of salvation as God's work as well, given to human beings as a free gift in Christ Jesus. So I, I want to, to take note as we're, we're switching gears here of, of the enlightening fact that the Bible actually contains two versions of God's law. Did you know that? How many people knew that? There's two versions of, of the Ten Commandments in the Bible. We get one in, in Exodus chapter 20, which we just read. It's on the screen right there. And the second one is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And when you look at, at the two uh, versions of the Ten Commandments there in Deuteronomy 20, and, or excuse me, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and you examine them, you discover that all the commandments are exactly essentially the same, except for the fourth commandment. It's in both. But the one regarding the Sabbath, in Exodus 20, the version, the version of the law as we just have read up on the screen, the Sabbath is set forth in Exodus 20 as a memorial of creation. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten, uh, that version of the Ten Commandments, creation is not mentioned in the Sabbath commandment. It's not mentioned. Rather, in this case, the Sabbath is set forth as a memorial of deliverance and liberation. I want to read it together. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. This is what it says. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now here's where it's different. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, or because of that, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So in the Exodus 20 version of God's law, which is where most people go instinctually, the rationale for the Sabbath is the finished work of creation. That's valid. That, that, that is, that is the, you know, part of what the Sabbath is pointing to. But in the Deuteronomy 5 version of God's law, the rationale for keeping the Sabbath is that it operates as a memorial of the work that God had achieved in delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt. But you're like, Pastor, how can the Sabbath function as a memorial of these two things? They're, they're very, very, very different. Well, honestly, the, the answer to that is that these two events are not that different at all. And here's what I mean by that. Both of them were achieved by the mighty power of God without any ounce of human contribution whatsoever. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. How did God deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage? Deuteronomy 5 gave us the answer. It says, God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the language here, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, is intended to convey the idea that their liberation from bondage in Egypt was achieved by a divine exertion of energy, not by their own power. They had nothing to do with them being set free from Egypt. It was all God. The parallel with creation, I think, when you look at it, is it's obvious and it's a perfect parallel. God created the world in six days by his own creative power and energy, and now God delivers from bondage the, the, the same way by his mighty power. 
Now, of course, the historic event that is referred to in Deuteronomy 5 is actually what uh, we would call the Exodus. And the, the Passover event was the point of, of deliverance for the nation of Israel. And in this Passover uh, event, the, the 10th plague there in Egypt, uh, the lamb was slain and his blood was, was painted above and on either side of each door of, uh, of the Israelites and at homes. And as the angel of death passed through Egypt, uh, that night to slay the firstborn of every family, every Israelite home that was marked by the blood was passed over. That's why they call it Passover, by the way. And that night, the children of Israel walked free by virtue of the blood of the Lamb. But to what future event did the blood of the Lamb point? Referring to the death of Jesus on the cross, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Do you see the connection here? So the cross of Christ is explicitly memorialized in the Deuteronomy 5 version of the Sabbath commandment. The, the, the liberation of, of Israel from Egyptian bondage pointed forward to the liberation of humanity from its bondage to sin. And it was to be achieved by the, the mighty outpouring of divine love in the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. So the Sabbath, it tells us that the truth of God's finished work of salvation in Christ as much as it tells us of God's finished work of creation. In fact, we discover in Scripture a deliberate parallel between creation and salvation, okay? So with, with John's gospel, the New Testament, the, the gospel of John, the New Testament opens its storyline with a direct parallel to the opening verses of the Old Testament. So in this way, John points us to creation as a, a passageway to understanding salvation. Notice the comparison here. I want to go back to Genesis 1 for a second. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, we've already read that. I want you to now compare this to John chapter 1. Check out what it says here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. These are two distinct but, but converging narratives here that are, are initiating the story of creation and the story of redemption in, in, in one parallel uh, connection. As both creator and redeemer, Jesus is the active agent in both stories. Each story also begins with the necessity of light shining forth in the darkness. And Jesus is the, the source of that light in both instances. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul picks up the significance of this parallel. And he says this, For God who said, Let sh light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Repeatedly in Scripture, salvation is articulated with creation language. 
I want to give you a couple uh, powerful examples of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're going to flip to Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, Ephesians chapter 4. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. One more in Psalm chapter 51. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You skip a few verses there. and says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In each of these scriptures, in each of these scriptures, salvation is spoken of as God performing a new work of creation. And that's exactly what salvation is. It's the the creation of a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And as we return to, to John's gospel, we see that the creation salvation parallel, it actually continues to, to a, a perfect completion there. As Jesus comes to the close of his salvation mission, his prayer to the Father actually invokes the Sabbath language from Genesis chapter 2. I want you to notice his words in John 17, 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now back in Genesis chapter 2, we read about the finished work of creation. But now Jesus is speaking about the finished work of salvation. Then when Jesus comes to the cross, as he's hanging literally between heaven and earth, he again invokes the the Sabbath language of a finished work, when in John 19.30 he said, it is finished, and bowing his head he gave up his spirit. So with poetic intentionality, Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. This is the latter half of the sixth day, Friday. He, he then dies, having finished the work of redemption. That's what he meant when he cried out, it is finished, by the way. Resting in the tomb on the, the seventh day, Saturday. And he rose to life again on the first day of the week, Sunday. So, so by his death on the cross, Jesus actually confirmed and immortalized the Sabbath as an eternal memorial of his salvation work. The Gospel of Luke, in Luke's chronology of the closing events of Christ's life, he informs us that Jesus finished the work of salvation on Friday, and he rested in the tomb on the Sabbath and, and rose from the dead on Sunday. So we, we see then that, that the Sabbath is actually a memorial of both creation and salvation. It is, it is literally God's weekly reminder to us that our salvation is 100% the gift of his grace. Totally his accomplishment. Nothing to do with us whatsoever. It's all his work that accomplished that. To be received into our hearts, as the Bible says, by faith alone. And as such, the, the Sabbath actually was set up to help guard against legalism and self-dependence And it lodges all of our hope and all of our trust in Jesus. The Sabbath tells us that that good works contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. While at the same time revealing God's mighty recreative work in each and every one of us. 
We are saved by his creative work, not by our own works. Are you with me? Our part is to rest by faith in his mighty power to save us. So with that being, being understood, then it makes total theological sense that the Sabbath is, is set forth in the Bible as a new covenant memorial of our salvation in Christ. Isaiah chapter 56 gives us a stunning prophecy of the Messiah and the establishment of the New Testament church. I want to read this to you. It's, it's a little bit of a long passage, but I think you're going to get something very powerful out of this. It says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This Messianic prophecy... It points out five things that I think I want to just highlight really quickly. Number one, it points out that the Messiah will bring God's salvation to the world. Thank you. Will bring God's salvation to our world. Amen? The Messiah is the one who's going to bring the salvation. The second thing is that a blessing is pronounced upon anyone, it says, who lays hold on it, on the salvation of the Messiah, that is. And in the same sentence, it says, those who lay hold on the salvation of Christ also keep the Sabbath. Did you catch that? It was in there, wasn't it? The third thing I want to point out is that Isaiah foretells that the Messiah's salvation is for all. It's not only for Jews, but for Gentiles too. Praise God for that, because guess what? We're all Gentiles, right? It says, the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord and the eunuchs. It's for everybody. It's open to all. The fourth thing that I want to point out is, with crystal clarity, then Isaiah foretells that these New Testament Gentile believers will be Sabbath keepers as they lay hold of the Messiah's covenant. And as a result, the church of Christ will be established for all nations. Isn't that beautiful? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So according to this prophecy... New Testament believers, both Jews and non-Jews, will be Sabbath keepers because the Sabbath actually signifies the new covenant. This makes perfect sense in the light of what we, we've looked at concerning the meaning of the Sabbath, both as a memorial of creation and salvation. Now we, we see that the Sabbath is, is inextricably connected with the new covenant, okay? It, you can't separate it. 
which according to scripture involves God writing his law of love upon the hearts of all those who put their trust in Jesus. Thus, ruling out any and all possibility of salvation by works. The Sabbath actually stands as an eternal memorial of the free salvation that we have by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It is, it's not surprising when you, when you understand this then to find that the New Testament church, both Jews and Gentiles, were actually Sabbath keepers, right? They, they, they kept the Sabbath. You come to the book of Acts and we read that this was exactly the case. Acts chapter 13, this was the practice of uh, Paul and his evangelistic workers. It says this, it says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So here we have Paul and his friends, and they are keeping the Sabbath as New Testament believers. Now someone's going to say, of course, Paul kept the Sabbath. He was a Jew, right? Well, let's keep reading here for a second. At this point, Paul preaches this powerful, powerful new covenant sermon regarding the death and resurrection of of Jesus, forgiveness of sin, and justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We're going to pick it back up in verse 42 where it says this. It says, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, I want you to notice, as we're we're getting ready to to close this thing up here, notice that the Gentile believers did not come to Paul as he finished his Sabbath sermon in the Jewish house of worship and then schedule him to come preach in their non-Jewish congregation the next Sunday. But rather, they, they scheduled him for the next Sabbath. So clearly this is evidence that all New Testament believers, both Jews and Gentiles, were all Sabbath keepers. All of them were. Now, of course they were because the the, the prophecy in Isaiah 56 said they would be. And according to the book of Acts, the apostolic church was a Sabbath-keeping church, right? And it wasn't until like some two centuries after this period that Sunday worship actually became something that was introduced into Christianity. And that's a discussion for another time. But the point is that that the Sabbath, which we have looked at today, was given by God as a powerful memorial of Christ, both as our, our creator and Christ as our Savior. And it was, yes, it was gradually abandoned by the church in, in the dark ages, but, you know, it was one amongst a whole host of things that the church uh, went down into the dark ages with. But I want to I want to finish by highlighting this. There's there's four main points today that were made that I want to just leave you with and just encourage you with today. Number one is this: that God created the world in in six days, forming and filling its spaces with with beautiful things, and then God rested on the seventh day. And what did He fill it with? He filled it with the blessing of His presence, the blessing of Himself. He filled the seventh day with Him. Number two, that God enshrined the seventh day in his moral law, the Ten Commandments, as an eternal memorial of both our creation and our salvation. 
both of those being the product of his work alone and his power alone rather than anything to do with us whatsoever. The third thing is that the Sabbath is inextricably connected with the cross of Christ and also the new covenant which invites us to rest by faith in Christ for our salvation. And the fourth thing is that the New Testament Christianity was a Sabbath-keeping church. So to engage in Sabbath rest as the Bible has laid out for us is really to rest by faith in Jesus. To live your life within the intimacy of God's love as the reason for our existence. And because of that, to remember our position of dependence on God as the great giver of all good things. So as we're getting ready to pray and wrap up for today, I want to encourage you, for those of you uh, maybe that have already been practicing this, but maybe some of you have not, I want to encourage you to, to just take this, this what we've, we've looked at today and to, to meet with your Creator and your Savior Jesus each and every Sabbath, each and every Saturday uh, as a constant reminder that you can rest by faith in the salvation he has given you as the free gift of his grace. And so that is the long answer when somebody asks, why do we worship on Saturday? That's why. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for being the God that you are. We praise you. We praise you that you are a God that is a good God that loves every single one of us so much. And you have given us this beautiful gift called the Sabbath, which is a a thing that you gave us to remind us of our relationship with you, both in creation, remembering that you are the creator and we are the creation and we had nothing to do with it. You did all the work and then you said, come and rest in the work that I've done. And it's also a memorial of of the salvation work that you have done. That It's a reminder to us every single week that, that our salvation has nothing to do with us. You've done all the work there too. And you've just simply invited us to come and to rest, to accept the work that you have done on behalf of us. Father God, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to, to worship you. It is a privilege to know you the way that we know you. But we realize that you created us in such a way that we were actually designed from the beginning to be in that intimate relationship with you. To be both and the Sabbath is a reminder of that from you to us. Help us not to neglect that and not to forget it, but to remember why it was given and that it is a gift to us pray this in Jesus' name.